Well, there's about uh, 28 more minutes of uh, Jim on Dwight pranks from the office, so you can know that your, uh, your rooftop dollars were spent in some intense sermon research this week, so thank you for that. Um, for those of you who've watched The Office, you know that the Jim v. Dwight conflict is a bedrock of the show. Uh, the show itself is filmed in and based upon a workplace environment filled with wonderfully different and unique characters uh, designed for the purpose of uh, our enjoyment. What will you find when you uh, go to the offices of Dunder Mifflin? Well, we see practical jokes, we see brown nosing, we see some insensitive and rude comments, teaming up on a coworker, tattling on the boss, or tattling to the boss, excuse me people who act like a know-it-all, Dwight. And uh, as I said, though, all this is designed for our entertainment, for the humorous objective that it very effectively uh, seeks to accomplish. But uh, there are other real-life problems and difficulties that we encounter with our coworkers that are not so entertaining. Some of those are grudges. Grudges with people at work, some of which we're aware of and others of which the cause we have no idea. Have any of you ever encountered a coworker that had a grudge and you had no idea why they held that grudge against you? Anyone have that feeling, have that experience at work before? It's infuriating. It's, what did I do? What happened? And they just never say anything. They're just upset. There's jealousy. There's jealousy about how things are at work. There's jealousy about how things are at home. Jealousy about what you do in your personal life. Jealousy about what you're doing. And just jealousy abounds in the workplace. There's vulgarity and offensive conversation. And some of us are in work environments that are much more than others. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps for five years, and I know full well, maybe the full extent of vulgarity and offense that can be uh, granted to somebody in a work environment. There's gossip and backbiting. Oh, the gossip, the talk, the talk, talk. Either about us or in a way where we feel like we're going to get drawn into it from somebody else. We don't want to, but we do it. And maybe even some of us are the cause of it. There's rivalry. Who's going to get the promotion? Who's going to get the boss's approval? Who's going to, not congenial team, we're all part of a team, but adversarial rivalry. And it's discouraging. It's frustrating. We always feel like we have to defend ourselves and protect ourselves because of it. There's indifference and apathy towards us, towards the job towards life, and it's hard. People come in with just kind of that cloud, that Eeyore cloud raining on them all the time, and it just saps our enthusiasm and our energy. And then there's discrimination. There's discrimination over race, there's discrimination over gender. Those happen in the workplace, but it, there are social justice efforts to acknowledge that, to, to make that a more uh, transparent uh, situation when it happens, safety to, to mention those and to bring those things out and even to hopefully diminish those. But there's another discrimination that I hear regularly from folks here at Rooftop, and that's age discrimination. There are people who are getting older. Because they're getting older, they're getting passed over for promotion, they're getting, being discarded, they're just for all sorts of reasons. And it's just unfair. And there is no social justice movement to defend Folks who are aging out, who are being discriminated against in the workplace because they're older. It's just your fault for being old. Oh, well. 
Workplaces are filled with difficult situations, and they're primarily because of the people we are. Some of you do certain work that is really difficult, but I would say majority of the struggle has to do with the people we work with. This is why we're talking about this, because 8, 10, 12 hours a day, up to 5, 6 days a week, we go into these environments that, of, that are not of our choosing. Apart from our families, we choose the people that we hang out with almost the rest of our lives. But our work, unless you're the boss doing the hiring, the people who you're working with, you have no choice regarding. Your only alternative is to not work, quit the job, but we know we can't do that as well. And so it's for these reasons. Well, one of these is the primary reason why we're talking about this sermon series called Faith at Work. Last week was Easter, and we had a wonderful Easter message, but two weeks ago, uh, Jacob talked about difficult bosses and how the role that bosses play and what we can do. What did he say was our, uh, was our encouragement to do in the face of a difficult boss? We're to what? Stand tall. Stand tall. And coworkers also contribute to the work environment, and today we're going to talk about that and how we deal with them. Before we jump into the nitty-gritty on the topic, I want to give us a little bit of vision, a little bit of big picture, which can help give us the motivation and the perspective we need for what God might ask of us as we continue through our message today. There's a quote from C. Peter Wagner, a thinker and leader in the church over the past 70 years. He passed away in 2016. Uh, But he said this about Christians in the workplace. He said, Christians need to have a vision What they do in the workplace is paramount to bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me say this again. Christians need to have a vision. What they do in the workplace is paramount to bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. What we'll talk about today is not just to help you get along better tomorrow when you head back into work, although we hope that that happens if you're in a difficult work situation. But what we also want for all of us is to better understand and believe, and believe, that God truly is in the middle of our various workplace environments, even the difficult ones. And for those of you in difficult workplaces, I know that's hard to hear. I know that's hard to hear. I want to acknowledge that um, actually this Wednesday will be exactly 10 years that uh, I've been here at Rooftop Church. Our family drove in 10 years ago tomorrow. Uh, to St. Louis, and it's hard to believe a decade has passed already. Thank you. And we have a great work environment. We do. It's, it's not without conflict. We have our conflicts, but there is a, a health to it. Um, I'm the only person that's made Jason Herbig yell, and I've done it twice. Like, nobody else has ever seen Jacob, Jason yell at somebody, and he's done it to me twice in 10 years. I love Jason. He loves me. We have a great relationship. Um, but that stuff happens. And that happens in the workplace. And so I'm grateful for that, and I I, I know that. Some of you, however, you don't have that same environment. You have a difficult environment. You have a struggle every time it feels like you walk through the doors or walk on the job site that you go to. And I want to acknowledge that this morning as we delve into the issue of coworkers and the the struggle that they they bring. I also want to give a shout-out to those of you who don't go to work but work at home. Raising your children as, stay, as stay-at-home parents. You may not like your co-workers at times, and that's understandable. 
So this message very much applies to you and the very important work that you do at home, loving, serving, raising. Julie has said uh, in conversations over the years that getting married to me was the, that became the thing that was the most effective instrument in making her more like Jesus. And uh, because of the difficulties and challenges she had to face in being married. It was, it's a compliment, really. I take it as a compliment. But that only lasted about a year and a half because then we had our first child. And she says, beyond a doubt, there is no comparison, raising children. And Julie homeschools them. She's a stay-at-home mom who homeschools. She says, raising kids is the thing that makes me most like Jesus. And so to those of you who labor at home and care for your children, um, do not feel like this is outside of your, uh, the scope of what God also wants to accomplish and promote in your life. There's a couple of narratives, stories in the Old Testament that I want to highlight real quickly for your reading. If you want to understand, what does the Bible say uh, about work environments? There's a story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. It's a uh, story of his life in those 14 chapters, but you see several work environments that are less than ideal and interactions with coworkers and people in his working realm that, that don't go well. And so I encourage that. Also, the Daniel in Daniel chapters 1 through 6. Daniel has an experience in Daniel chapter 1. Then after years of faithful service, he has another experience in Daniel chapter 6. Great story on how unfortunate things happen or even adversarial, harsh things happen, vindictive things happen and how they deal with it and how God intervenes. So I recommend both of those to you to read. But this morning, we're going to talk about Colossians, two verses in Colossians chapter 3 as we continue. Uh, Colossians was a letter written to the city of Colossae in the first century by Paul, who wrote many other letters in the New Testament. And chapter 3 is a great chapter, filled with all sorts of uh, truths and ways to apply the faith that we profess to believe. I encourage you, if you've not read Colossians chapter 3, put it on your list this week, read it, pray over it, devotion in it. Uh, it will be very beneficial to you. But there's two verses that deal with work in Colossians chapter 3. The first is Colossians 3, 17. It says this, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three general things. Whatever you do in word or deed, this includes our work. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why do we do it? It tells us. Whatever we do, do it in the name of our Lord Jesus. What's the purpose of what we're doing? And how should we do it? He closes off by saying, do it with thanksgiving to God. As hard as that might be, he says, give thanks for what you are able to do. Because you and I both know, as bad as it is, it could be worse. We could be physically incapable, incapable to do what we are able to do. I could go on and on, I don't need to. Gratitude is essential in the workplace. If gratitude is a gift from God, to protect us, it protects our hearts from falling prey to the vindictiveness, to the rivalry, to the pettiness. We want, God knows, we need to be as followers of Jesus, people who are cultivating a spirit of gratitude. And that simply starts by every morning thanking God for the job that you have. Thanking God for the ability to earn money. Thanking God for the vehicle or the transportation to get there. That spirit is necessary in this process. Colossians 3.23 goes a step further than Colossians 3.17. says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then it's not 
on the screen, but verse 24 says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Again, similar to 317, we see whatever you do, but specifically says whatever you do, work heartily. Uses the word work in this passage. And it tells you, how do we do it? For the Lord. What are you doing? We're working for the Lord. And it very specifically says, who are you not working for? People. Your boss. Your coworkers. Your family. Even yourself. That's, as Christians, that's who we don't work for. As Christians, we work solely for the Lord. And that's an incredibly important principle for us to dwell on and to throw in our backpack on this journey of faith at work. Because ultimately the audience of one, the audience of the, of the triune God is the only audience we should care about and the only audience we should focus on. Because if we focus on anybody else, what's going to eventually happen? That person isn't going to recognize us. That person could potentially stab us in the back. That person could eventually steal credit for the thing that we're doing. That person could, and I could go on. And then what happens to our attitude and our heart at work if that happens? We're mad. We're angry. We get caught up in our own sin because of the sin of somebody else towards us. Sin begets sin. And so if we're putting our hope and our trying to please anybody except the Lord alone, when we go to work, we're setting ourselves up for discouragement, struggle, potential failure. And so very clearly, Paul says here, do the work, but when you do it, do it as unto the Lord, not from men. And so our big idea today, when we, when we struggle with the question of, ah, or the problem, I hate my coworkers. What does God tell us? Serve Christ. Serve Christ. Serve Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ, verse 24. But you might ask the question, well, Jeremy, how do we do that? How do we serve Christ, practically speaking, in these environments that we find ourselves, that we have no choice but to enter into. And to answer that, I have three C's. Three C's in the serving of Christ in the workplace, dealing with difficult coworkers. The first is this. The first is to check ourselves. We need to check ourselves. It is so easy to point the finger at somebody else when we have problems of any kind. We all do it. I'll be playing with my kids and wrestling with them, and I get them all ramped up, and all of a sudden, a foot or an elbow comes to the mouth. And it, it hurts. It might be a little bit of blood. And what's my immediate response? Argh! Like it's the kid's fault at some level. I'm the one that riled him up. But in that moment of struggle for me, my instinct is to blame somebody else. It's me. We all do it. We see it in our children. You know, there's a problem, and I, I see a child who is dead to rights wrong in the situation. And it's amazing how in that moment they can say, them, him, her, her, him, her, him, her, him, her, and you too, but not me. I'm like, ah, how did you come to that conclusion? That's lunacy. And yet, you know what? That's me. I do the exact same thing. I blame. I shift. And so we go into a work environment, and our work environment is difficult. And what do we need to do first? We need to 
check ourselves. We need to ask the question, am I part of the problem? How am I contributing to the situation? And we don't do that naturally. Some of us don't even want to consider that at any level. But the reality is, is we're probably contributing at some level if we've not asked ourselves that question before. And that's what God wants to do. He wants us to, to ask ourselves. There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we're going to spend the rest of our time in, uh, verses 15, excuse me, 14 through 17. Um, but they staggered the verses related to the point. So there's two verses, verse 15 and verse 17. And it says this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. For it is time, and then verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. You see that? Judgment needs to begin at the household of God. And what he's saying there is, do not be maligned because you're a knucklehead. Do not be maligned because you're lazy. Do not be maligned because you do shoddy work. Do not be maligned because you shirk and try to get out. And you're really not, you may profess to be a Christian, but you're not loving and serving. You're actually gossiping. You're actually talking inappropriately. You're, you're doing the things everybody else does, but you, quote-unquote, claim Christ. And you wonder why people might struggle with you. We've got to check ourselves first. It is time for judgment to begin first with the household of God. When I was uh, 16... I'd had a bunch of menial jobs up until I turned 16. When I turned 16, I became able to get a job at, you guessed it, McDonald's. Back in the day, we all, many of us worked at McDonald's at one point or another. It might be less now. Uh, that's the actual picture from Google Maps of the store in Romeo, Michigan, where I worked. And uh, I tell people, what did you learn in your time at McDonald's? Um, well, nothing except I learned how to talk to girls. Because when I, before I started, I get sweaty palms, I was really nervous, but because of the mixed environment, by the time I left, I felt very confident to have a conversation with the ladies. So thank you for two years of wonderful, productive uh, de personal development, the Golden Arches. But there was one other thing that happened. When I got a job there, I was a professing believer, but I was raised in a dysfunctional home, and some of you have heard the story, and without getting into it, I flew the flag of being a follower of Jesus, but it wasn't here like it should have been. I didn't talk about it a ton, but if people ask, yeah, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I go to church, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. But I didn't have the best attitude when given the chance of being industrious and showing some initiative. I'd stay back in the grill and make jokes with the guys and not do the extra bit of work that could have been done, or I'd gossip about somebody, you know, one of the things that happens at McDonald's, or did happen when I was there, and I saw pretty early on, is that when, when you would close the store or when people would leave, they'd grab a Coke on the way out, or they're going to throw away some food at the end of the night. Nah, don't throw that away. Put that in the bag, and I'll take that with me when I go. And this was against the rules. Some managers said it was okay as long as they got the count and they did it, and in that regard, you're okay, but, you know, when you start doing something like that, you start doing more of it and maybe cross over some lines, and... I got in the habit of just grabbing a bag of food and walking out. Now, I only had to pay half price, and this is back in the 90s. So, like, my cheeseburger would have cost me a quarter. That's it. Well, one day I had, like, $1.69 of food in my bag, and I'm walking out, and one of the managers pulls me aside and says, 
hey, Jeremy, are you going to take that with you? And I'm like, yeah, here. And they go to ring it up, but I didn't have $1.70 to pay for it. I had like three quarters. And so I told them less than what was in the bag. I'm a fool. Carol, who was known as the not nice manager, by the way, um, she opened the bag and looked, and looked at me and saw that what I had told her didn't match what was in the bag. And I was busted. Over like a dollar. I sacrificed what little probably witness I had as a thief. And so I left that day. I come back in. I don't know what's going to happen. The manager, Ken, pulls me aside and says, Jeremy, um, I'm aware that you stole food. I don't know if you've been doing it previously. Two things. Don't do it anymore. And if you screw up in one way, I'm going to fire you. Now, when you're 16, you're working at McDonald's, you're worried about getting fired, like, I can't ever put McDonald's on a resume, they'll have fired me, it's going to ruin the trajectory of my life. Well, it wouldn't have. But when you're 16, you don't know that. And so I hung around, because I wasn't going to quit because I got fired, or because I, I stole the food, so I had to stay around long enough to leave on my own terms. Well, while I was still there, something happened in my own heart, uh, and circumstance of my life, and I recommitted my life to the Lord at age 17, right before graduating high school. And when that happened, this faith that I had been learning about and professed and did believe, it invaded every part of my life. And I actually did change who I was at work. And for months, I began to change, and, and, and I was different. I worked harder. I looked for opportunities. And before I left, about six, seven months later, when I left to go to the Marine Corps, I had several workers there say, Wow, Jeremy, I really noticed a change in your life these past six months. God was able to redeem my time there. And it's because I was willing to let him show me. Where am I the problem? The verse says, do not be, do not suffer as a murderer. You know, do you lash out in anger? Are you cursing people behind their scenes? Are you just being a, a hateful person? You don't have to kill people to be a murderer. Jesus says, simply cursing them. And being angry at them. Are you a thief? Oh, there's me. Are you stealing food? Are you stealing paper clips? Paper. Are you stealing time with the time you spend online or in social media or doing around your phone? Thievery is at our doorstep all the time. It's a, it's a temptation we all face. But it's still, it's stealing an evildoer, a meddler, we gossip, we involve in other people's business. These are all things that we're told, do not be maligned for these things. And so in your workplace, you just have to ask, does the shoe fit on you like it fit on me? Is this why we struggle? Is this why we're having difficulty with people? Do we somehow fit into one of these categories? At McDonald's, I was the problem. It wasn't McDonald's, it was me. I would have told you it was the place I worked. But praise God, I was able to redeem my witness and testimony as a follower of Christ before I left, and I didn't tarnish Jesus. We serve Christ by checking ourselves. Secondly, we serve Christ by turning the other cheek. What does that mean, turn the other cheek? Well, in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where even non-believers say it's some of the greatest teaching the world has ever known, he gives this phrase, if someone strikes you on the right, right cheek, Turn to them to the left also. And what that means is that when somebody hits you here, as a Christian, don't call the police. Don't demand justice. Don't get on the phone with your lawyer. Don't think in that first instance, how am I going to 
secure and defend my rights because you can't treat me that way. No, no. Jesus says to those who would dare follow him, when they strike you on this right cheek, what do you do? Here's the left as well. Now, this is foreign in our society and in our, you can't defy my rights. We are a rights-focused culture. We're a rights-focused church. How many of us will take a slight, an attack, an offense, a hit to the cheek and turn the other one? They can't do that to me, Jeremy. They can't do that. I'm protected. I can't be treated that way. And yeah, according to the law, that's right. But does he say live by the law or does he say something different? And we might say, well, Jeremy, what you're asking is unreasonable. No one does that. We have rights. We need to adhere to those rights. You know who else had rights? Jesus had rights. He had all sorts of rights that he willingly put aside in order to what? To be the person who could show us the grace to forgive us their sins, to protect us from eternal judgment. And so when we think so quickly about what are my rights, and there might be places where you have to take those steps, but is that your first gut response? Or do you go to the Lord and say, Lord, they did this to me, they offended me, they took something from me, they took credit for this thing that I did, or they they talked bad about me, they maligned me. Do we need to report it to HR? Is that really the first thing we need to do? What might God have for us to do in that situation? That's that's all I'm asking. Are we willing to stop and ask the question? I was uh, in the Marines after my time at McDonald's. I spent five years in the Marine Corps. And when I was in the Marines, because of my recommitment that I talked about, I was a pretty outspoken Christian. Now, I understood I didn't want to be a judgmental Christian, and so I wouldn't, like... The guys have a bender the night before. They come in hungover, and, uh, and I wouldn't say, eh, Gunny, he's hungover. Office hours, he should be. No. I'd go out with them sometimes. I'd be the designated driver. I wanted to love and serve these guys. But I still, I kept my distance. I actually wish now I would have spent more time with them in reflection. But I wasn't there judging them. But I knew they were saying things about me. I knew they ridiculed me pretty bad. I didn't know to what extent because they didn't do it when I was around. I got it a couple times directly. Finished my time, 98, I'm done with my five years. I'm finished, go back to school, get my degree, get married. And now I'm at my first ministry job in Grand Rapids at the church there. And about 2002, 2003, I get a phone call. And it's from this guy named Scott Bennett. Scott was a Marine with me in Hawaii, had been there for a year and a half. He got out in 96 while I was there and went on to whatever. I said, hey, Scott, how you doing? We chatted for a minute or two, and then he says, Jeremy, I'm calling for a reason. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? I'm calling to apologize. I'm like, for what, Scott? You know, it's great to hear that you're doing well. And he says, well, um, I need to let you know that I regularly ridiculed you and made fun of you for being a Christian back in the Marines. Oh, Scott, no big deal. I, I knew it happened. It's, you know, it comes with the deal. No, no, you need to know this, Jeremy. You need to know this. Because when I got back to Washington, I was in a situation, this, uh, this group, and I met this guy, and he started talking to me. I started attending church with him, and he shared the gospel with me, and I heard the gospel, and I believed it, and, and I received Christ. And shortly thereafter, God showed me at some point that you had been preaching the gospel to me during your time in the Marines, but I didn't have any interest in it. 
but at the same time, what you had done and the, the life you sought to live was what allowed me to be ready to hear it and respond to it when I did five years later. And I need to confess to you that I sinned against you in how I treated you. I was blown away. I saw some guys come to the Lord, and we had periods of effective ministry, but never that type of thing. And it showed me. It just, that was just God saying, Jeremy, your labor is not in vain. You're not working for yourself. You're working for me. And so, as you serve Christ, are you willing to turn the other cheek? Are you willing to love people who might not be loving you so well? Because their eternity might depend on the ministry you're having to them, ministry that you won't find out this side of heaven. But at some point, the other side of heaven, someone walks up to you and says, thank you for loving me. When I was ridiculing you, thank you for being Jesus when I didn't deserve it. Because it's going to happen. We serve Christ by checking ourselves. We serve Christ by turning the other cheek. It's the cheek turn it that threw me off. Turning the other cheek. And thirdly, we serve Christ by cultivating a relationship. And this is the how-to. How do you deal with difficult people at your work? All of us have them. And they're difficult in all sorts of ways. And this is the practical, what do I do? Jeremy, help me. Throw me a lifeline. What steps can I take to begin fixing this unfixable relationship? I'm ready to quit. I need to quit. I need to start over. Romans 12, 18 gives us this verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Love that verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. And so I've got five things for you. The first is this. Pray for them. Are you praying for the difficult people at your work? As followers of Jesus, that's the first thing we need to do. We need to pray. We need to pray. Not pray, Lord, please let them get sick. Please let them get fired. Please let them get caught stealing so that they'll, I don't have to deal with them. No. Lord, please save them and help me if you want to use me in that process. Show me what I need to do. Please fix our relationship. Pray for them. Really pray for them. Second, empathize. Become a person of empathy. It's often, there's a reason why somebody is the way that they are. And to step back out of the difficulty they're causing us and to look into their lives and to say, okay, this is their past uh, work situation. Oh, this is their home life. Oh, this is their broken relationship. Oh, this is the situation with their kids who they don't get to see at all. Or this is what happened here or there. By entering into their world or they had some other encounter with a church or a Christian, they found out I'm a Christian, they don't trust me, they think I'm a jerk because the last person was a jerk. Empathy helps us have compassion on people we would otherwise return the hostility. We need to empathize. We need to step out of our own world and step into theirs. And that takes work. We have to develop that. But if you do, it will help you have the ability to engage people who you would otherwise not want to engage, but whom God may have you exactly in that position to engage. Thirdly, pray for them, empathize, apologize. Apologize. If you screw up, if you do something wrong, ask for forgiveness. We live in a culture that never acknowledges wrong, and at best you might get a sorry, sorry, sorry. What if you started becoming the person, hey, I was wrong when I did that. Will you forgive me? What if you started using that kind of language? People would think you were from Mars. Oh my gosh, he's a freak. 
He asked me to forgive him. Who does that? We need to be countercultural if we're going to reach a lost secular world. Apologizing, being humble is one way. Repent, repent. Have a spirit of repentance. It's not weakness, it's strength. That's one way of shining through the darkness in these workplaces where so much garbage takes place. Fourth, be consistent. Be consistent. We cannot go into our workplace up one day, down the next, up one day, down the next, happy, sad, angry. We need to be steady. We need to be enduring. We might have struggles on the inside, but we got to find the grace to let God work on that so that we can be reliable. People don't come to and trust you if you're erratic, but if you're steady, if you're consistent, you build trust. If you're there, if they know you're going to be there, people whose lives are in tumult, and who God is wanting to bring in your path, if you're steady, he'll use you to minister to them. But we got to get off our emotional roller coaster. It's not about us. And that's a really hard thing to do, I know. But if you're consistent, you build that trust, and people will seek you out. And finally, five, learn to encourage. Be an encourager. How often does that happen in your work environment? Just free, no strings attached, hey, you did a great job. Hey, I love the tie. That tie is awesome. Oh, wow, I saw that picture of you over the weekend with your daughter, with your son. How did that trip go? It looked amazing. Be encouraging. Our words are weapons for the negative and for the positive. You might not be a talker, but you have the opportunity with your words to breathe life and to build bridges with people who we are otherwise separated from. The Bible calls us ambassadors to the lost. And by simply being an encourager, you can begin to build bridges that never existed with people. And you can find doorways that God will use for ministry. So as much as it depends on you, be at peace. Pray for them. Empathize. Apologize. Consistent. And encourage with all people. I don't know what your work situation is like. Like I said, I'm blessed and thankful and grateful. I don't deserve it. To have a work environment where we have issues, but there is a mutual maturity and wisdom that allows us to, to navigate through those and be a great place to work. You might not have that same blessing, but God has you where you're at for a purpose, and God is using where you're at for them and also for you. So when you're struggling and you're frustrated, remember, we don't do it for them. We do it for an audience of one. We do what we do to serve Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just strong words to help pull us out of some of the trenches that we get ourselves stuck in because of our feelings, because of our uh, habits, because of our hurts and our wounds that have just had too much control in our lives over the years. We do, we feel stuck, we feel locked into these behaviors and thus relationships are corrupted and, and we just don't feel empowered. We walk into our workplace and we're just hanging on, trying to survive. And that's not how you designed it to be. You've given us an infinite, infinitely powerful spirit dwelling in our hearts, in our lives, ready to unleash him 
into these workplaces and these relationships. And for those who are here who really are struggling in their workplace, I just pray you give them encouragement, give them hope, give them vision, give them motivation to engage with new zeal these places, these relationships that feel just beyond repair until such time as you might call them away or might not. You might have a restoration plan for them where they're at. And so, um, whatever that is, Lord, we just pray that you would reveal that and accomplish that in their lives. We're thankful and we're grateful for your word and for your power to see your word happen. We ask this in Jesus' name.